We are continuing in our series of Romans, and you'll remember we've kind of come week in and week out uh, to this story of Romans. It's not, it is uh, a book that we have placed so much importance on um, because it's so doctrinally loaded. Uh, It's heavy. It has so many things about it that we form some of our most foundational truths But more than that, it's a journey. It's a journey of how God's power is being revealed into our world, being revealed into our lives, certainly being revealed into Paul's life as he's writing this letter uh, to the Romans. We can't forget that it is a letter to real people um, where they're trying to figure out how to live this Christian life in the scope of God's providence. And so we're walking this journey with Paul as he writes to uh, some of his friends uh, and others, uh, trying to uh, discover the power, the power of God's grace, the power of God's gospel, and how that transforms everything uh, that uh, we do. And so we're going to read uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 14 this morning. We'll read through uh, verse 25. Uh, If you will, uh, please follow along either in your own copy of the Scripture or we've got it printed for you here on the screen. This is God's holy word. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, revelation, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. May he write its truths on our hearts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We are so thankful this morning that we can call you Father. 
whether we've experienced your grace and mercy through earthly fathers or whether we haven't, it is such a glorious thing that we can know that you are our heavenly Father, that you hear us, that you tend to our needs, that you know our frame, you know the number of hairs on our head, and you care for us beyond what we're even able to care for ourselves. You've adopted us into your family through your son, Jesus Christ, and you are making us to live out as family members through your spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would press this truth way, 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 way down deep into our souls this morning. We need your help for that to happen. We're not capable of seeing and understanding and reveling in the depth of who you are and what you've done for us. And so we ask by your Spirit that you would press into the dark places that haven't yet seen uh, the warmth of your redeeming grace and show us that. Enable us and, and, and bring it to bear such that we feel the freedom of confession and feel the freedom of repentance and feel the freedom of living after your righteousness, King Jesus. And we need your help uh, with that this morning and we ask that you would do it for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were with us last week, and it's okay if you weren't, uh, you, you certainly are welcome to go back and watch the podcast or watch online. Uh, Dave uh, introduced um, the, the first part of Romans chapter 8 last week with an illustration. And some of you will probably remember uh, that illustration. It was uh, that of uh, a car windshield on some of our newer model cars that is wired and calibrated to everything. And so if you get a chip in your windshield and you've got to go get a new windshield, well, what happens? You get the new windshield and then you also have to get the rest of your car recalibrated to that windshield because they're, they're so intricately connected. Well, as you saw last week and hopefully you'll see again this week, We've got rocks coming at our windshield of life weekly, do we not? We've got chips and dings, two, three, six, I don't know how many, coming at you on a regular basis, and they're dinging our windshield, and we come weekly, and we ask Jesus, would you please recalibrate our lives to the, the sweet, good simplicity that's so overwhelming in the gospel. And so last week, uh, if you were with us, the, the, the calibration toward gospel living started with a, a conclusion. No condemnation. You can look back in chapter 8, uh, verse 1. There's no condemnation. That's the conclusion. And then Dave showed us, well, how do we know that's true? Um, it, because the Trinity, the Holy Trinity has acted on our behalf. And then the question, how do we live into this conclusion? Well, the Spirit gives us new vision 
uh, and new vision to be able to see and do because of what Jesus has done. And so recalibrating our lives in the gospel, Dave said last week, is defined only by what God says about you. You you struggle with that? When redefining our lives in the gospel is rooted in only what God says about you, not anything else. Only what God says about you. That changes us at the core, which then enables us out our lives um, in the gospel. Well, Paul is going to show us a similar uh, thing this week, and we're actually going to follow the same uh, rubric that you saw. And don't be surprised if you don't see the same thing again next week. Uh, We're going to start with a conclusion, and then we're going to look at how we know that to be true, and then we're going to look at how we live into that. So Paul starts in verse 14, and he gives us a conclusion. What is that conclusion? In Christ, you are family. In Christ, you are family, and he shows us that in four ways. Look with me as we work through these four ways. The first is sonship. And in order to really understand what it means to be a son of God, and we'll get to how that relates to females in just a second. Bear with me. Um, In order to really understand what Paul is telling us about adoption, we have to understand it in the context of Paul's time. Adoption was much more Roman than it was Hebrew. And so Paul understands, culturally speaking, this idea of adoption, and the context of it is that of a wealthy person who did not have an heir to their inheritance, to their estate, and so they would go and adopt someone to become their heir. To, to take over their estate. And that meant three, that, excuse me, that meant four things for this adopted person of this wealthy individual. One, it meant that all his debts were paid, all of them. All his debts were paid. Two, he got a new family name, and that made him heir to everything that the father was and is. So he got a new name that made him heir. Three, the father immediately becomes, in the Roman culture, under the headship of adoption, the father immediately becomes liable for everything that the son does. Past, present, future. The father is liable for everything uh, for his adopted child. And then four, the son was obliged to honor or please uh, the Father. Now, let me take just a minute to, to, to speak to the masculine pronouns that Paul uses. Many people, and you know this, many people would read a, a text like this in our society today and be so off-put by the insensitivity of the use of only uh, masculine pronouns. And I want to encourage you, it's helpful though, it's helpful, and this is a principle that doesn't just apply to Romans 8, it applies to the whole of Scripture. It's helpful to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? That's one of the tenets of the Reformed faith, is that we allow Scripture to interpret itself. We don't 
import into Scripture. We allow Scripture to interpret itself. And Paul knows that Roman adoption or sonship was a status of power only given to males. But what's he doing in Christ? He's flipping this subculture of masculinity on its head and saying, in Christ, there is no distinction. And I can import that onto women as well. He's using this idea to show that God is not differential in giving and showing honor. Males and females are both children of God, which is why he goes on further in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 to say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, there's neither slave nor free, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's flipping the masculine societal norms on their heads. It's also why he's going to call every man in this room in Christ a bride. Right? So it doesn't just happen to females. Paul comes to us and says, for every man that's in here in Christ, you're the bride of Christ. Just like every female in Christ is the son of God. And so he's redeeming this idea of sonship. What's the point? Well, if you're sitting here this morning and you believe and know that you need Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and you're longing to become more like him as his spirit leads you, then your identity has changed such that it cannot be rivaled in this world. You understand that? Your identity has changed such that it cannot be. Your job, um, your identity in your children, your identity in your money, uh, your identity in your sport, your identity in your significant other, uh, your identity in your sexuality will not pay your sin's debt before a holy God. It will not make you an eternal heir to anything. And they certainly can't redeem your actions uh, for the future. For as much pleasure as we think we get from these identities, they are not going to love us near as much as we love them. It's not going to happen. And so being adopted children and sons of God recalibrates who we are. It recalibrates our identity. But it's not just sonship. Paul also tells us three other things. Intimacy, assurance, and inheritance. Again, I realize when we talk about intimacy with a heavenly father, there's a decent chance that some of you didn't feel intimate uh, with uh, your earthly father. Um, and, and I'm sorry for that. It, that and so it may, be, it may be a little hard for you to tangibly feel uh, this next truth as it relates to adoption, but that doesn't make it any less true. Paul's image and wording of a child, either full of joy or full of pain, running into the arms of uh, his, his or her father, to feel the safe, loving, giving embrace. That's what Paul says is yours, this kind of intimacy. Only Paul says that this father, whom you know literally 
as daddy is the one who holds every atom in existence as we speak. Like the fact that your bodies don't just blow apart and are held together by these skin cells is the one you know as daddy. That's a level of intimacy. And so we, when we go to him day in and day out and we pray to him, you understand that the adoption, that recalibrates us. It recenters us on Christ and his, uh, his resurrection, his crucifixion. But it's not just sonship and intimacy, it's also assurance. What does it mean that you're adopted into God's family? Well, do you see yourself or does someone close to you see, see you growing in Christ? Like manifesting more love, more joy, more peace, and more patience, and more goodness, and more faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Maybe not by leaps and bounds, but growing, however incrementally. That is the encouragement of the third person of the Trinity. <laughs> As he comes alongside our spirit, assuring you that you are God's child and that he's at work in you. That's subtle and yet overwhelming, and that assurance recalibrates our life. What else does it mean to be adopted into God's family? It means inheritance. Have you, have you ever wondered what it must be like to never need or want? Like what it must, what it must be like to be so richly blessed that you're always satisfied with everything. It's almost inconceivable to our human minds, isn't it? Satisfaction in everything. You, we never want, we never need love, we never need affection, we never need help, we never need healing, we never need wholeness because you've got all that you need and so much more that you could never run out. Sonship and intimacy and assurance and inheritance, that's the conclusion. It's all yours in Christ. All of that is yours in Christ. For those who are led by the Spirit, Paul says, you are family. And some of us, for some of us, we don't feel, we only feel that in part but we hope for what that will be in fullness. And that recalibrates our lives in the gospel, recalibrates our hope. That's the conclusion, we're family. But how do we know that's true? How do you know that you are a member of God's family? How can you be sure that that's true? Well, maybe it could be summed up like this and we'll explore it a little bit more. Christ gave it all up so that you could share in it. Christ gave it all up so that you could share in it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but why do we teach our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews, why do we teach them to share? 
If you're like living and breathing in here this morning, you have experienced either receiving the teaching or giving the teaching that we all must share, right? Why? Where does that come from? Where's this concept of sharing come from? I want to suggest to you that sharing is woven into the DNA of all creation because sharing is Trinitarian. Let that kind of sink in for you. I know that's huge and it's big, but sharing is Trinitarian. The reason we, 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 the reason we can bank on the recalibrating nature of God's family and adoption and God being our Father and us sharing in uh, this beauty is because He shared His Son. He gave up his son. The son shared himself. God the Father and God the Son shared the Spirit so that he could come live in you. Think about that. The the Father gave up his son to atone for yours and my sin so that the wrath would be satisfied towards sin and the relationship could be restored. That's a sharing that's unequaled. The son uh, became sin and was forsaken, his intimacy, his assurance. Think about this. All those things that we just talked about that make up adoption, sonship, intimacy, assurance, inheritance, Christ set those to the side so that you could receive those in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. You now bear his status. Son and daughter of the Most High God. And they both gave up their spirit so that you would not have to be on this journey alone. How do you know it's true? How do you know you're a family member of God? Because when you teach your children and your grandchildren to share, you're teaching them the gospel. You're teaching them the beauty of what it means to be in the family of God. And that recalibrates everything that we do. It recenters us. It focuses us. It brings us back to the middle. So how do we live into this? If this conclusion is true, that we are indeed family, and we know it's true because of what Christ has given us, what he shared with us, How do we live into this conclusion? Well, we hope in and we hope for. We hope in and we hope for. I love these people that can have a vision for something that you you can't see, okay? So probably about six or seven years ago maybe, um, we had some fr- dear friends in Brookhaven where Kelly and our family just came from who remodeled our house for us. Uh, we paid for it. I mean, they didn't pay for it. We paid for it. But they did like the design plan. And as much as we sat at our kitchen table and looked over that designs plan and they like walked us through the house to show us how it would look, I, it did not make sense in my mind. I just, I could not, I could not grasp it because I couldn't see it, right? 
And so here we go on this journey to remodel our house. And I can remember, Kelly can tell you, the kids can tell you, I remember sitting in the middle of our house on a five-gallon bucket lamenting my life. <laughs> right? Hating my life because we'd started this project and every, all I could see was the plywood subfloor. And the hole in the ceiling where we had to put this beam in, right? And it was a mess. And that's all I could see. And I remember my friend coming over to me. I'm sitting on my five-gallon bucket. I'm pouting. And I remember my friend coming over and saying, hey, but it's going to be so worth it. In the end, it's going to be so worth it. And friends, the Christian life is like remodeling a house while you live in it. You've got to get out of your mind, okay? We have to get out of our minds this idea of renovating and vacating at the same time because that's not how Christianity works. That's not how it works. You don't, get to, you don't get to ask Christ to renovate your life and recalibrate your life and recenter your life while we go stay in a hotel. No, you got to live in it. You see, we have to live in it. And think about it through this lens. There was nothing comfortable for Christ in the incarnation. There was nothing comfortable for Jesus to come to this earth and live and die so that we could be saved from our sins, which is exactly why Paul says we will have to share in his sufferings. Christianity and comfort in this day and in this age do not go together. They will, but not right now. And Paul wants us to see that. Um, that as we live into this true family, the conclusion of this true family, we have to understand that our lives are going to be under hopeful renovation. So practically, what does that look like? Well, it looks like Paul's saying, hope in the fact that God is at work in my sufferings and in my groanings. And to hope for the fullness of adoption, the redemption of our bodies and everything being made new. You see that in the, in the text, right? Friends, God was teaching me something about myself and about others and about himself as I loathed my existence in my disheveled house, right? He was teaching me about patience and he was teaching me about self-control. And he was teaching me about not being able to control others or time or circumstances. He was teaching me about living and loving in an environment that's not very livable and lovable. That's hope in God being at work even though it feels like suffering and groaning. That's hope in God being at work, but not just being at work, but also hoping beyond that. He taught me what it was like to taste a small glimpse of glory because I can still, to this day, 
feel the first time that I sat down on that couch in my nice, new, put-together house, sat down on the couch and leaned my head back on it and propped my feet up on that chest and thought, it is finished. <laughs> right? I remember what that felt like. It was a small taste of glory where there was no more disheveledness. It was a beautiful put together home. And that is a beautiful example of what it looks like to hope for something that's coming. To hope for an end where there will be no more work, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more groaning, just celebratory satisfaction in God. If that doesn't get you going this morning, we hope in the fact that God's at work, even though we suffer and we groan with creation, we don't even have time to get into that, but I, I mean... That's a whole nother sermon. I hope you realize creation is waiting. It's groaning. It's intimately tied to the fact that you're adopted as the family of God. And the trees right now are out there waiting for you to be fully revealed as sons and daughters of God because then they're going to be made whole too. Everything is groaning. Everything is suffering. Everything is affected by the fall, but we can hope for what's coming. I wonder this week, um, I wonder this week if you, if, if you might consider asking the Holy Spirit to show you how God's at work in your suffering and your groaning. Some of you are suffering in really hard ways. Whether it be relational or whether it be physical, you're suffering in ways that no one else can understand here. And I wonder if you would ask the Holy Spirit to help you see how God is at work in your groaning and in your suffering. I wonder if we could even ask him to give, give us a peripheral perspective uh, toward glory as you look intently at your suffering. The, the, the peripheral perspective that looks and sees that there's something better out there. There's something better um, coming you see, hope in God's activity in the midst of suffering and groaning and hope for eternity will recalibrate our lives. It will reorient us. It'll recalibrate everything around us. It's even creation. Maybe we can even ask this morning that the Lord would give us strength and vision through simple things like bread and juice and wine to cast our hearts and our minds and our strength toward an even greater feast, an even greater family feast that, our, that is ours and will be celebrated in the fullness of joy as children of God. Let that captivate you this morning as we come to the table.